Welcome to the Scale to Sale podcast, where we hear stories from successful Salesforce ISV founders. I'm your host, James Gastine, a former ISV founder myself, and now building the world's leading suite of Salesforce apps with Unaric. In each episode, we'll delve into the entrepreneurial journey of some of the leading ISVs in the Salesforce ecosystem. I've certainly enjoyed these conversations and I hope you do too. Hello, and welcome to today's Scale to Sale podcast, where I'm joined by Dita from Mirage. Dita and Mirage recently joined the United Portfolio back in November. So Dita, very excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Yeah, thank you, James, for the invitation. And just to kick things off, I think it'd be great to hear the story uh, behind the inception of Mirage. And I think also how you kind of got into the Salesforce world. I think every founder's got uh, a quite a, pe- a peculiar story of how they uh, ended up working in the Salesforce ecosystem. Yeah, so indeed, we started outside the Salesforce ecosystem with a generic CTI application, uh, which works with call identification using SQL database and Microsoft Access. And mm-hmm. we sold that application as an OEM version to ERP and CRM vendors. So that's how we started. Mm-hmm. And then around 2002, we used Salesforce internally. And it was logic that we thought about the CTI integration in Salesforce. At that time, Salesforce had no CTI toolkit. And right. we launched the first Salesforce integration in 2004. Yeah, very, very long time. And at that time, we even exported the account and contacts in a database. And Mm -hmm. sometimes later, uh, Salesforce launched the CTI toolkit, which was also our first managed package. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately for us, Salesforce discontinued the CTI toolkit and launched OpenCTI where we then had our first listing on AppExchange, which was on in 2011. So mm. technically, we developed the product three times. <laughs> and yeah. And in the meantime, we have a, another CTI product. It's the Mirage Connector for Service Cloud Voice, which also mm-hmm. brings over 100 phone system and Microsoft Teams to Service Cloud. Yeah, so in the end, four times development um, of a CTI mm-hmm. application for Salesforce. Wow. So for those uh, Salesforce historians of, of you who might be listening to this podcast, 2004 is before the app exchange. That's even before Salesforce thought about opening up their ecosystem. So I think Dita must have been one of the very, very early ones in there. So again, you know, if you've been using it in 2002, that's a, a very, that's a, a different era almost. So yeah. that's great to hear. And how did you, when you know, when you when you set about developing it, like, how did you identify the opportunity uh, about you know connecting telephony with Salesforce? Because obviously, in those days, the servers were on the West Coast. It was very much an SMB product. It didn't have an ecosystem. It didn't have a platform. How do you go about you know identifying that opportunity? Because obviously, it was a very early CRM system, and the cloud was very nascent in those days. Yeah, honestly, we did not analyze the market. Um, We already had a CTI component 
And uh, Salesforce did not have a CTI solution at that time. And then remember, it was before AppExchange. So yep. we just did the integration as we already saw the potential of Salesforce in that early days. Yeah? And as we used internally Salesforce, we then also could directly test our CTI integration. So it was just a decision and a betting on Salesforce that mm -hmm. they have the potential to grow. And who were your first few customers? Was it was it kind of sales teams who might be wanting to integrate a phone system with with Salesforce, or did you kind of have kind of some you know different use cases that you came across in the early stages? We just that started with Google advertisement, and the very first customer was in March two thousand five where mm -hmm. I sold 10 licenses uh, and it was a US company. Uh, and that is already very astonishing because right now we have, a, or over the time we had most of the sales in Europe. And so that the mm -hmm. first customer was a US company, it yeah, <laughs> was, was cool. And at that time we sold a perpetual license and not a subscription. So we only switched to subscriptions many, many years later because at mm. that time, yeah, you typically sold a perpetual license. I have to ask, when was your first Dreamforce? Did you go to one of the very early ones then having been in the ecosystem now for almost 20 odd years? No, um, I would have to check, but it was around 2010, 2011 um, when I okay. attended the first Dreamforce. Yeah, I've met founders who went to the very, very early ones when they used to throw uh, CD-ROMs into a toilet um, at the <laughs> end of software. And then talk to us a little bit. So, you know, uh, you, you bootstrapped your business. You've been in business before and been successful. What were some of those initial challenges you faced when you were bootstrapped? You know, maybe what some of the trade-offs you had to make because, you know, funds and, and, and self-financing, uh, you know, had finite resources. So when I started the company in 1995, it was more or less a one-man show with an external developer. And mm -hmm. at that time, I did not have the money to, the, to finance the developer. So we made an arrangement that he participated in the profit. And yeah. technically, I did everything on my own. So I did the product specifications. I did the lead mm -hmm. follow-up. I made presentations. I made support. Mm -hmm. And I also did the installation. So it was quite good for uh, a customer. He had the contact with me in sales, and I stayed as the contact. Uh, for him then uh, with installation. And mm. from the financing part, we already had a product um, hobby protection solution and that financed a bit uh, when we started with Salesforce. Right mm. now, Salesforce is 99% of the turnover. and uh, But it was really very hard in the beginning and I remember very well when we had the first months with over 10,000 euro turnover. So that was a really <laughs> milestone. Yeah. And after that, then the next steps came where we added developers and then support and so on. I think that's quite a nice way to do a kind of a profit share with the developer. I think, you know, a lot of founders we meet and I meet are more technical founders. So again, you can bootstrap it because it's your own time. Whereas I didn't come from an engineering background. So again, 
you have, you know, you need to have real money for that or real resources or profit or shares. So again, I think sometimes getting creative with uh, engineering teams, it, it, it can be very useful. We spoke a little bit about, you know, how you acquired your first customer. You said it was back with kind of Google Words, uh, Google AdWords. And kind of in terms of like, you know, the, the following customers after that, like what did you find were, you know, some of the marketing strategies that work quite well? Because obviously back in, you know, March 2005, there was no exchange. So, you know, what did you find worked well then? And maybe talk to us a little bit about kind of what, what works well now, you know, some uh, 18 years later. Yeah, so for now, I can clearly identify four important strategies. Uh, mm -hmm. The most important one for us is working with Salesforce consulting partners. We get over 50% of the revenue from recommendations through the consulting mm -hmm. partners. They have um, a new customer. The customer implements Salesforce, and then he says, I need a product ABC. Which one can you recommend? So that's mm -hmm. very important. The next important part is to work with Salesforce account executive and system engineers. Um, mm -hmm. If you don't contact them, you are never recommended and it's very hard. You have to uh, get meetings with them and introduce yep. your product so that they know even that you exist. Yeah, uh, But mm -hmm. that's an important uh, part also. Um, then another strategy or important part is to go to all Salesforce events. Ideally, you have yep. an own booth, but um, it's also important to be just there as a visitor <laughs> and meet the partners and Salesforce account executives. So I really can recommend to do that. And yep. the last one is, of course, now the App Exchange listing. And here you have to check that you get a lot of refuse and good refuse. Yeah, Mirage yeah. with the CTI connector has a 4.94 rating and uh, over 120 refuse. So that's also mm -hmm. important because now customers check the app exchange. And just going there, I think the first point is really interesting. You said, you know, Salesforce SI, the system integrators, you know, their recommendations bring over. 50% of business, which is obviously, I think, what a lot of other ISV founders would love to. Like, just on that bit, like, talk to us about how you built up to that, because obviously, I imagine that takes a bit of time to get to. And I'd imagine a lot of founders would, would love to have half of their ARR recommended by, by the SI partners. That's indeed because I'm working a, a lot of over 20 years in the Salesforce ecosystem. So if you go to all the events, then you know all the important consulting partners and they uh, know you. And of course, you get a recommendation only if your product is good and if you uh, also really treat every lead then um, important and connect with the partner and inform him. But it's in the end a very hard work over a lot of years. And then if you think about, you know, we spoke a little bit about the kind of marketing side of things. If you look at the kind of the wider journey over the last 20 odd years, what have been some of the, the kind of uh, unexpected uh, hurdles or challenges you faced and, and what lessons did you learn? Yeah, that's a good question. So <laughs> if you are an entrepreneur, and that also means that you have often highs and lows. And mm -hmm. 
it's important that you believe in the product, but also in yourself. Otherwise, mm -hmm. there's no chance that you survive mm -hmm. it if you have a low for a lot of months. And um, yeah, you need to believe in, in the product and yourself and not give up. And uh, when you start, um, it takes a lot of time until you can sell a product. So if you start really from scratch, then it's a year or more until you can sell it. And then you sell it and the first customer has new feature requests and then you need to decide, okay, do I implement that or is that yeah. uninteresting for other customers? So for a software company, in the end, one of the big challenges is to know what the market will demand in one or two years because you have so long time to develop new features or integrate in, in new systems. Mm -hmm. And of course, I also made decisions where we developed the product and nobody had interest in it. Yeah. So yeah. that's for sure one of the, the, the big challenges to make the right decisions um, from the product side. Yeah. And for example, when uh, with Teams, which is now our main feature, um, we started four years ago where Teams was used for telephony, not at all. Teams was used for meetings, for chat, but mm -hmm. nobody, nearly nobody used Teams to make landline calls. And yeah, we've been lucky to make the decision a long time ago because it took two years for development where we are right now. And, uh, and it was the right decision because now everybody is switching to Teams and landline calling. And really, I think, you know, kind of related to that question, looking back, is there, is there kind of anything you might have done differently in the early stages of your startup? Yeah, that's a bit difficult questions because you often look at things differently in hindsight. Um, but that mm. does not mean that your decision was wrong at that time. Um, for example, I started very late with building relationships to consulting partners. So only mm. after a few years, I visited the Salesforce events and contacted partners and also the Salesforce account executive. For sure, in hindsight, I, I should have started here um, earlier. And it's similar with the developers. Um, we waited a long time until we added external developers and support staff in different countries. Of course, mm -hmm. in 2005, there was not the infrastructure and also mm -hmm. you could not do that. Um, uh, but that allows us now to do more product development because of the mm -hmm. price advantage. And yeah. yeah, we started 2016 with outsourcing in other countries, and it would for sure have been helpful to do that earlier. I totally agree with that. I mean, I think we we were quite lucky. We we managed to start building out a team in Poland early on, so we always had that. I think it was a skill advantage, but also kind of a cost advantage compared to some of the Salesforce, um, you know, rates going on in London. But again, it, it's it's a tricky one because again, going back to your point there building relationships 
often the channel needs to have a proposition. So if you've only got a handful of customers, that looks risky. Whereas if you've acquired 100 customers, that's a good story to go and tell them and makes their life easier. And if we think a little bit more now about the, you know, the, the future of Salesforce apps, you know, how do you envision the future of you know, Salesforce apps? And maybe how, how, is, how is Mirage preparing for some of these changes that you envision? So Salesforce changes rapidly and launches <laughs> not only new releases, they also launch a lot of new technology. And the trick is here to recognize which new technology will be important for your product. So from mm -hmm. all the new features and technologies, you have to permanently check it, evaluate it, and make an estimation. Is this interesting for my product? It's also important not to do that too early, but also not too late. So if you start with the first release from Salesforce with a new technology, it very often mm -hmm. um, lacks features. So it's mm -hmm. always good to wait one or two releases. And yeah, our team is constantly monitoring uh, that. And because we have the team structure lean, we can also make quick decisions. So when we say, okay, that looks promising, then we just uh, do it uh, and then and then make a decision. Yeah, I think it's a great point there about you know the the new launches from Salesforce. I remember back in. 2016, when Lightning came, everyone got very excited and started rushing to build on Lightning and realized that it might be only 50% future compatibility. So then customers were switching between Classic and Lightning halfway through their day. Um, so again, some of it is you've got to prepare for the new world, but also it does take a little bit of time. And I think, you know, obviously everyone's talking about AI back at uh, Dreamforce in September. But again, the reality is, is, you know, how do you implement it? How do you make sure it's available for your customers that's going to take? Uh, a little bit longer. And then finally, David, just to wrap up, you know, what's the one piece of advice you wish someone had given you when you, you know, started out Mirage, uh, you know, as an ISV founder? In the end, expect a long time before you really earn mm -hmm. money if you do the financing by yourself like I did. So it's yeah. tough and then you just need time. But the recommendation would be go for an investor, even if you're at the very start and you have to give shares for mm -hmm. um, a price which you perhaps think, okay, yeah, that's hard, but go for an investor which adds value and helps you with sales and provides connections. An investor which just gives money does not really help you. Because yep. when the money is gone, yeah, you don't have more sales. So you need somebody um, who helps you. And that's uh, why we made the decision for Unaric. Um, you add much more value like a pure financial investor. And we can then participate from cross-selling, marketing together. Yeah, so that would be my recommendation will take time until you earn money and uh, go for an investor which helps you uh, with connections. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great point. I mean, in my first business, we, we both came from a service world. So it took a long time to replicate what we would earn doing contracting in terms of ARR. Uh, you know, it can take years, right? So to, you know, if, you've, if you're earning handsomely being a contractor, 
you know, you've got to sell a lot of software licenses to get anywhere near that. And again, like you said, it takes a long time uh, and it's tricky. Dieter, it's been fantastic having the show. I think, you know, you have got a, a wealth of wisdom in the Salesforce space across Europe, I think going back to 2002. Um, so yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thank you, James. And looking forward to working with Lou. Likewise, Dieter. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this week's Scale to Sale podcast. If you'd like to join us as a guest on the podcast, drop us an email with more information about your ISV and your story to podcast at yanaric.com. See you again soon. Mm-hmm.